from Swarthmore College. From Swarthmore College, this is... This is... This is... This is War News Radio. Hello, I'm Martin Tomlinson, and thank you for listening to War News Radio. Hi, I'm Louie. In this episode, we discuss Thailand's anti-government protests, which are in open defiance of the monarchy's authority, something atypical in modern Thai history. Images of Thai youths flooding the streets in defiance with three-fingered Hunger Games salutes have plastered the news media across the world in recent weeks. Yet often, the context behind the story is left unfinished given the brevity of news cycles. Since 1932, when the absolute monarchy was replaced by a constitutional one, Thailand has been subject to a staggering 13 coups and 18 rewritings of its constitution. This places the country in a unique position where, unlike most countries, constitutions are considered the gold standard of political behavior and are only changed in times of dire need. Thailand's are written each time power changes hands so that it provides temporary power to the winning faction. Coups orchestrated by the military to overthrow populist, democratically elected civilian regimes in 2006 and 2014 were characterized by intense polarization between two battling factions, the urban royalist elite and middle class, backing the military and the king, and the rural pro-democratic lower classes. However, this bout of protests appears to have united these two former enemies to address the issues of corruption in the military-controlled government, an unpopular king, and an economy in freefall due to the coronavirus pandemic. In this edition, we will break down and take a deep dive into contextualizing the unprecedented nature of these protests through the lens of two young people of Thai origin to help understand why these protests came about, what protesters' demands are, and how they have been received. To break down the events that led to these protests, we are joined by Pierre Songkunith, a writer and freelance journalist originally from Sisaket City in Thailand, who now resides in the United States. Our second guest is a university student of Thai origin studying in the United States. Even an appearance of dissidence can be subject to severe repercussions by the Thai government. So to protect their identity, we will refer to them as Jason and voice over their interview. Pira leads us through our contextualization of this unprecedented event. So Thailand is a formerly a constitutional monarchy, but actually it is more of an absolutist mm-hmm. kind of state with democratic trappings. Um, I think that's a fair way to put it. What that means is we have a parliament or you know Congress with the House of Representatives and everything and the whole balance, checks and balances, but it doesn't work. Um, Everything is linked up back symbolically to the monarchy who sits at the apex of the social and political hierarchy. And what is supposed to be is like, you know, in Japan or the UK where, where it, it just sits there symbolically, but actually is above politics, meaning not involved in politics and under the constitution, meaning that bound by the, the, the constitution and actually has no real actual role in exercising power. Um, but that is not the case, has not been the case for a long time. Actually, so since this is an American show, um, you know, it, it's important to, to know that the CIA had a lot of role during the Cold War in propping up the monarchy uh, as a way to ward off communism, which was, you know, the domino theory uh, was going to kind of like collapse Southeast Asia from Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. And Thailand was seen as the bulwark 
against uh, the encroaching communism. Um, so the CIA really, really propped up the monarchy starting in the late 40s. Um, yeah, and that led to finally decades after that with this one king, uh, King Pumipon, who reigned for 70 years uh, from 1946 to 2016. So that was quite a long time. And all, throughout this reign, the monarchy regained the stature it had in absolutism back in the early, early 20th century. Um, so, so yeah, we, we seem to have democracy um, in the 70s or 80s or 90s, but what, what, what it really is, is, an, is democracy just covering up something um, that is more absolutist, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, but after 2016, when the previous king died, uh, the new king ascended to the throne, which is his son, he's 68 years old now, and he really doesn't care to sort of appear uh, above about to be above politics. He doesn't care to appear to be bound by the constitution. Thailand's current king, Bajiri Longkorn, the son of the late King Bumibal, ascended to the throne in October 2016. Pira gives us the Thai perspective on Bajiri Longkorn's transition to power, as well as their views on the controversial monarch. He was never popular. You know, he was always, has always been seen as a playboy um, who doesn't really, he's not fit to be king. You know, he doesn't have that personal authority, doesn't have moral authority at all ever since, you know, decades ago. So um, people were really anxious when he, when he ascended and was like, oh, so now we can have him as king. So how will it turn out? And, you know, because, because, his father was revered so much and for so long, um, he sort of had that grace period where people were like, okay, well, we'll see how, how it goes. Uh, we'll see how you rule. Um, but he has squandered that uh, grace period really badly, I think. Um, you know, I would never have expected that in only four years into his reign, there will be an uprising against him, basically. With, even with all this propagandistic um, body, the Washington doesn't, he doesn't have a lot to, to show after, after his life. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's hard to, 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 to kind of just create that image for him, even though there was an attempt. So at the very end of King Pumipon's life, there was a, an attempt to transfer the, the charisma or the moral authority from Pumipon to Washington by having these mass bike events calling called bike for dad and bike for mom bike for dad is basically like in billboards all over the country there would be images of the father and the son only these two like you know in in various family photographs um yeah so but but that didn't really didn't really pan out well i think because there was there was like a scandal and there was People who were involved in organizing it died under mysterious circumstances. Um, so pe people really know that this one, you know, is a dangerous man. Um, and nobody believes that he's a 
family man. Nobody believes that he's frugal. Nobody believes that he is moral. Thailand's less majesty laws are some of the harshest in the world that make perceived defamation or insult to the monarchy punishable by up to 15 years imprisonment. Pierre explains how the Thai government has approached the criticism of the monarchy in these protests. So interestingly, you know, the King Rajalongkorn actually told the prime minister to not use the less majesty law recently. So uh, during this reign, there has been less prosecutions and persecutions over less majesty law. But that doesn't mean that, you know, the severity is, that doesn't mean there's no problem or less of a problem. Uh, nine dissidents have been disappeared. Two of their bodies surfaced in the Mekong River with concrete in their stomachs. Jason, who was born and educated in Thailand, gives us their perspective on how the Thai monarchy permeates daily life. So my experience with the monarchy probably dates back from since I was born, I think. Because when I was born, it was in the era when King Rama IX had accumulated so much respect from the Thai people. So the point is that he was pretty much revered since I could remember. And every day we would be taught in Thailand as a country, we have three main pillars, which is the nation, religion, which in this case is Buddhism, and the monarchy. So he was esteemed pretty much everywhere in Thailand. And every single day since I was an elementary school student, every day since I entered the formal education system, we would glamorize the king. So the point is that he's revered everywhere and has always been the case, at least. But one realization that I had since I entered high school and have had more conversations with other people is that it might not be. I still agree that for King Rama IX, the majority of the people revere him, but there is also some, you know, because it's hard, it's difficult to find any space where people would say otherwise. And in fact, it's not allowed in Thailand. So yeah, what we see is that people revere him, but I'm not sure. It might not be the case, if that makes sense. Now we'll go back to Pira, who shares his own personal history with the 2010 protests and how things have changed as support for government reform has garnered unprecedented support in parts of Thai society that were once generally accepting of the monarchical status quo. Um, my personal experience was that I wasn't part of the protest movement in, in 2010. I was uh, just a high schooler in the, in, in, in the neighborhood. Um, and a lot of my friends in school back then really hated the protesters. They really saw the protesters as terrorists um, who you know, came from the provinces, uh, poor people who were fooled by politicians, populist politicians, and came to wreak havoc on the capital city and the shopping malls that they love to go to. Um, and I, I, I was from the provinces as well. So I, 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 I already had this kind of like alienation from my friends. Um, so back then, like the, the, the social persecution was really strong if you come out and speak, even speak in support of the protesters back then. Um, if you're in an elite high school or if you're in a middle class uh, society. But 10 years, 10 years forward now, uh, those very same students, or not those very same students, the students in the same school that I went to, they are one of 
now one of the major instigators of this movement. And they now see the protesters 10 years ago as heroes, basically. You know, people who came before them who, who really saw things for what it was and um, bravely fought for what they demanded, even though they were defeated. Um, but now they, you know, they are sort of revindicated by these middle-class young people who form the, form the most visible front of this movement now. So I, I don't talk to a lot of them, but I, I always spy on them, you know, because I want to see if they change. Um, and some of them do change. A lot of them actually, when there was a general election last year, after, after five, almost five years of military rule, um, a lot of them went out to vote and actually advertised their act of voting. And that's significant, you know, because the, the whole point of the red shirt movement was that we want, we want the right to vote back. And we want our, we want our choice to be prime minister since we're the majority. Um, and so, so that, that was a huge thing for me to see many of the people who like despised me for criticizing the monarchy and for siding with the red shirts um, actually put, I voted on their uh, Facebook profile pictures. Pira now comments on the diverse group of people who have united under three key demands and tackles a misconception that Thai protests are primarily a young people's issue. When we say, you know, broad coalition, um, it's really broad this time. Uh, to say it, I don't think it would, would, be, would be fair to, to say it's student-led because many of the leaders, if you can say, call them leaders, um, they are mostly, you know, some of them are students, some of them are in college, you know, uh, juniors and seniors in college but they have been activists long before that. Um, and, and, and a lot a lot of others are already, you know, college graduates or people who, some of the instigators never went to college. Because in Southeast Asia, or as, as, especially in Thailand, there's this um, problematic history of like only seeing the student leaders in, in, in mass movements like this, because they're the most pure, they're the most, you know, untainted by like, money or um, material concerns. So they're, they're seen as this pure um, uh, agents of change. Um, when in fact, they, they, they don't necessarily see themselves as more pure than older or poorer or more rural folk who would join them. The three key, movement, key demands of this movement is one, dissolution of parliament and you know, the, the, the prime minister must resign. Two, um, drafting of a new constitution. Uh, and three, reform of the monarchy. So I, I think these three key demands are, are what binds all these different sectors of society together. Jason elaborates more on the dynamics of this new round of protests and how they differ from previous ones. So one thing I'd like to point out is that these protesters are not a monolith but then they are also comprised primarily of younger people's wishes. And these younger people feel agitated with the way the country is going. The sense of frustration and the sense of agitation, this isn't something we normally see in Thai politics because most protests that have happened before are organized by some political parties or clearly defined set of leaders. But for this protest, first, there's no leader, right? And second, 
It's comprised mostly of young people. And third is the appeal is, I would say, quite universal. Talent has seen a host of consequential political protests and military coups in recent history. Yet in many ways, these contemporary protests are fundamentally different. Jason comments on previous protests and how this contemporary iteration has broken the norm by uniting a vast coalition of Thai citizens. So there were the yellow shirts and also other groups of people. So the point, okay, so the point I want to make is that in 2014, the distinction was that most of the protesters are urban people who are so fed up with Toxin and his cronies government. So they still think that the corruption issue lingers as long as Toxin is still there in politics. And they want to completely eradicate those perceived malfunctionings. So if you take a look at these three protests, the side of politics is clear. You see that most of the issues have to do with corruption and politics, one side versus the other. But for the current protest, that is happening. The distinction is small in terms of that the difference is not about politics. It's not about supporting one group of politicians at the expense of others. But it's more about people fighting for the future of the country and fighting against certain structural inequality. So you would not say, okay, so in the past there would be protesters that may claim the other side performed some nefarious actions. But the current protest is more about the issues, such as structural inequality, institutions that hold back Thailand from progress. So you would see the issues is more the issues they are focusing on more or less about the people and more about destruction. Jason comments on which direction the winds are blowing in this tumultuous chapter of modern Thai history and whether he believes there will be peace or conflict in the aftermath. I will say more conflict because people who are bestowed with power are not willing to listen and are not willing to understand the claims made by the young, by the protesters, so that that probably creates more conflict in the future because, you know, when there's a Chinese proverb saying that when there's a change, it depends on whether you want to build a windmill or you want to build a wall. I think that many, many people in the current government or in the older generation, and I don't want to pin this as the old versus the young people conflict, but there's still, you know, the point is that People who are clinging to the old image of Thailand, such as Thailand needs to you know, have certain essence, needs to be organized in this way. Some people are clinging to that image. But in reality, things are changing. People are not trusting the same. People are not having the same thoughts. And they're not trusting the same types of institutions they used to. That people would in the past. So in that case, it's because... Because one side is not listening to the other. I believe change is going to happen no matter what, and no one has, and no one can stop that. It's just how it's going to happen. And that's going to be happening peacefully or having some sort of violence. And to wrap up this segment, Pira comments on the shifting dynamic of civil disobedience in Thailand and on Thai's hopes for the future. There's no happiness higher than nirvana which in, in Thailand, we, we sort of see it as like the extinguish, extinct, extinguishment of desire. 
and the you know the the achievement of absolute peace. Um, in political terms, this means that any protesters clamoring for material improvements for cars, mobile phones, things like that are seen as excessive, are seen as not sufficient, are seen as un-Buddhist. Um, and therefore, you know, when people come to protest and like make a lot of noise, um, the language of civil disobedience in Thai, it, it, it tends to be misread as like this kind of like more tame kind of, um, it, it, it needs to be tame, you know. It has to be tame to be ennobling if it's, um, if it's loud, is it if it's vulgar, if you, if you shout obscenities at the royal motorcade, then you are really bad. You are really violent. Um, so, so, so this this is a this idea of happiness that is really linked with peace, in a sense, not as nonviolence, but as kind of like silence. Um, is, is is I think is really key in in sort of regulating and organizing how we do protest. Like a, a lot of the older people who come out uh, to join this protest, the ongoing protest right now, they you know they say and they feel that what they fought for is not for naught. As in, even though there were long periods of time when everything is silent and happy, according to the regime, there are actually people who are unhappy in the same ways that they have been unhappy. Like that people have been disenfranchised the same way that they have been. Um, people have been, you know, oppressed the same way have they been marginalized the same way they've been maybe different ways but comparable um so so that so that's a really positive thing that comes out of this at least that there's that reassurance to older generations that like okay we we are right we know that we are right but also these people now know that we are right these younger people know, know, that, know that we are right and they also are really smart in fighting the regime in ways that are haven't been seen before. So, you know, when when we when we watch news from Hong Kong, um, we would we would kind of tell each other, we as in like pro-democracy people on Facebook, let's say. Um, like they have it much worse than us. You know, Hong Kong has no hope of of actually like getting out of China, you know. So but but they gave their all. In Thailand we actually have a possibility of you know changing it for the better for once finally uh, get it over with um, so so what we see now is, is sort of like personally i i can't help but be hopeful again i'm louis and I'm Martin. Thank you again to Pura and Jason for speaking with us. A special thank you to Sophie Peterson, Bryce Broussard, and J.D. Psanga for editing and publishing this piece. If you want to hear more pieces from us, find us on Facebook or visit our website at warnewsradio.org. Thank you for listening. 